Welcome to Humanitude. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of this podcast series about humanness and creativity. Today, I'm sharing an especially special conversation. I'm talking with Brenda Williams, an empathic coach and facilitator, a bilingual poet and storyteller, and founder of The Power of Girlhood, a leadership institute for teen girls in the Detroit metro area. Today's conversation, though, is different. I came to it with the preparation and research that I usually do, and I had ideas of how it might organically flow within that framework of preparation and expectation, and then things changed. I had checked in with Brenda, and we planned to connect again to record this the following week. By the time we talked again, the events of Jacob Blake being shot by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, had happened. And of course, that was only the latest in a long, long history of such interactions and injustices. And even now, as I say these words, we're already aware that the shooting of Jacob Blake is not even the most recent one. So we set aside the conversation that we'd both thought we would have, the one that would get into Brahenna's personal story as a mentor and poet and founder and so on, and instead we had the free-flowing, trusting, heartfelt conversation that we really needed to have. Brahenna and I are two strangers with very different lived experiences, and we came together to listen to each other, to be heard by each other, and to share in our common humanity. So we moved through this time together that we were talking with thoughtfulness and without rushing. And in this conversation, we talk about empathy and compassion for other stories of experience. We talk about systemic racism, abuses of power, cultural changes, and collective behavioral changes that need to take place. We talk about spiritual practices, including one that you might not be thinking of through that lens, anti-racism. And we talk about how we can have courageous conversations, first within ourselves and then with others, so that we can start to chip away at this callousness, the lack of humanity that feels just so dominant and so destructive and so painful. We also touch on white privilege, or I should say that I do. And I attempt to express that as a means of understanding why some struggle to see or acknowledge that privilege in their own lives. And then we, the grand collective of we, need to heal. Can that happen if we do not begin to have conversations such as this one between me and Berhenda? And can it happen if we don't start to look inside ourselves and ask honest, difficult questions and face what we find there? In this conversation, Berhenda shares some takeaways for how we all can work together in this process to work through these extra challenging times and for how we can reaffirm or create those connections with the humanity we all carry. So in this conversation that neither of us planned to have, we followed our hearts and we had the conversations that we needed to have. Along the way, I'm sure I didn't say everything right. And if you were willing to engage in this type of conversation with someone in your life, you might not either. And that's okay. We need to be willing to risk being wrong in order to open and create these possibilities for dialogue, for healing, and for growth together. Like Brene Brown says, and that's someone that Berhenda and I both realize that we appreciate, we're not here to be right, we're here to get it right. So here we are, my conversation with the amazing light and community leader that is Berhenda Williams. Berhenda, Welcome to Humanitu. I'm so glad we're about to have the conversation that we are about to have. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So you and I had a conversation initially a few days ago in preparation for this call, this recorded conversation to share. And once again, the landscape of life has changed and we are going to shake up whatever this conversation is about to be by starting off with the events surrounding Jacob Blake and getting into some feelings and thoughts on that subject because it just seems maybe a little more important than whatever I was about to start the conversation with you uh, today. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So where are you in this space that has shifted around and underneath us right now with the goings-on of the the most recent police shooting, uh, this one of Jacob Blake, seven times shot in the back, 
he is holding on to his life in a hospital bed, his life changed forever. And of course, many around it. And I think that you have some feelings and thoughts on this and are willing to share. And I appreciate that. So I want to hear from you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for holding space for this conversation. This, the space that I'm, I'm in uh, up to the moment and it, and it feels like there are so many pivots that we're navigating in this season in particular. I mean, we're not even three months out of witnessing a public lynching of George Floyd and the collective grief surrounding that. And, you know, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, I mean, we can keep going where seemingly, you know, they happened in succession. Although Ahmaud Aubrey, his lynching surfaced, so it was something that was suppressed. And so when we bring it forward to to Jacob Blake, I think it is a necessity for us to gather and convene in community as much as we can. Obviously, social distancing is still very much um, a necessity and where, where we are. And when we look at, you know, marches and, and protests that are happening, even in the wake of um, social distancing orders, I think we need to pause and look at that because there there is a need and call that that in you know despite a recommendation <laughs> from you know our science scientists that say to keep the pandemic to keep covid at bay we require social distancing the loss of life the continued loss of life is compelling people to express their anger their rage their grief their suffering their weariness of systemic racism in the United States, in the continued um, abuse of power in police departments. And I think the thing that really impacts me, and it's similar to, um, I believe it was Leon Ford from Philadelphia who was uh, who met a similar fate, the lack of humanity of it all, that this level of violence continue with no repercussion and the huge lack of empathy, human connection. I mean, Jacob Blake is in a hospital bed in mobile, but yet he's still chained like an animal to a hospital bed. And so what does that say about us, the collective? What does that say about how we interact as human beings with other human beings? And the definition that I I hearken to for compassion is to witness someone suffering and having the willingness to do something about it. And I hear and feel sentiments of despair. And I'm sure, Adam, you have heard and seen many times the word allyship and ally moving around our lexicon. And I'm, I'm at this awareness now that it is going to take mobilization of our humanity for our humanity. And who gets our compassion and who does not? And what are the disruptors required so that we can human each other and be willing to have these these kinds of conversations? And how can we move the conversation to legislation? Legally, yes, legal legislation. But my, my, I guess my million dollar question is how do we legislate the heart? How do we legislate the mind? 
how how do we impart to to people that there's no benefit to oppression there's no benefit for the oppressor in oppressing so for you to shoot someone multiple times in the back at that close of a range he was a threat to you long before you got into proximity what indicated to you that this person is a threat to you what does his skin signify to you what trigger or triggers does it invoke and not just him we're talking about a department we're talking about a culture and i think that these are the kinds of like we have to look at this from a cultural standpoint and not i think we look at culture in sort of these broad terms around you know maybe art and uh expression but culture is also behavior what is acceptable behavior? What is unacceptable behavior? And while I want to believe and, and believe that it is not every single police officer, there are officers who have spoken that are not uh, in agreement with the culture, but culture permeates and culture becomes uh, embedded into our subconscious. This is just the way that we behave. This is just the way that we react and it's on autopilot. So I'm just yeah, really concerned in this moment right now about our culture and the culture within the culture of our really defenders. They're, they're to serve and to protect. I mean, that's the adage, the decree, serve and protect. And how is this in any shape, form, or fashion of service? And how is this in any shape, form, or fashion protection? Protection from what and from who? When in many communities, the police officer seen as the threat. I would think as well protection of what and of whom. Because in those moments, when those things are happening, there's not an actual threat that has materialized and it may not materialize. So if there's not a danger, what are we protecting? Mm -hmm. And it often happens in locations as well where what they claim to be, who they claim to be protecting in that process is not even present. Mm -hmm. If we factor in the culture and we factor in the politics, the politics of fear yes. and division, those people and those places aren't even present so often at the scene where these crimes are being committed against unarmed people. What possibly could constitute in that moment, a, a snap judgment, what could constitute being worthy of a death penalty? Yeah. And I also have a lot of feelings and I'm not sure what all the words are to describe it, but around the word empathy that you used and that inability that we are all collectively showing to see ourselves in the other person to see the humanity that we think we personally hold in that other person in that moment. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of pain for a lot of us yeah. who recognize this, feel that despair you mentioned and aren't sure how to go forward. Cause like you said, we can't legislate, we can't make policy these matters of the heart and compassion and empathy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do other than I'm glad that you and I are having this conversation. Yeah. I think we need to have more conversations. Sure. And I think that we need to have conversations that move to, um, a mobilization in a way. And I think that mobilization while physical protests are, are one way of mobilization, but I do think we need to reimagine what it means to mobilize. So we, we look at Jacob Blake and his perceived disobedience that resulted in his paralysis. And the dichotomy of Kyle Rittenhouse, who comes from another state <laughs> with an assault rifle, right. with, with a, a deadly weapon, 17 years old, so not old enough to one even possess such a, a firearm, comes from another state 
is allowed to return home to 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 his state, um, shower, and then is arrested and and makes a phone call to a friend to to say that I have killed someone. So where or how do we look at the culture? Yes, we understand supremacist culture, right? This in this country. What was the culture within specifically like his home, his family? What was his mother like? What was his father or, or those who were around him to influence him? Um, the leadership, obviously, in this country that is, uh, supports this, this sort of be- behavior. How do we even begin to unpack, you know, all, all of that? Because you don't just wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to buy uh, an assault rifle and I'm going to, my target will, will then be people who do not look like me because they're a threat. And so you looked for something. You were looking, you were searching for a perceived threat before it got you, you were to get it. And I'm just really concerned, you know, as we move back into our academic year, uh, in our institutions, particularly law enforcement, the institution of law enforcement, and also, Adam, the institution of education, because um, I'm sure you're aware, and many of of your listeners are, are probably also aware of the school to prison pipeline. And I think that those two institutions are the most detrimental to the perpetuation of systemic racism uh, in our country. And of course, it's up to individuals to heal. It is up to individuals to educate themselves. However, we're, we're very much in a space where voter suppression is real. We're very much in a real space, um, Adam, even in the, in the clients that I serve in my coaching practice, many of them were not aware to the magnitude of the civil rights movement, you know, the sit-ins that, that, that happened and the, the need to even prepare. So simulations were done where they practiced having you know, hot coffee poured on them and, and food dumped on their, on their faces. And, and I can't even imagine what the endurance and tolerance level, which your threshold has to be to, to endure something like that because you are so committed, so dedicated to, to an idea, to a possibility that as a human being, you can go to a public space and sit in any place that you want. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of John Lewis. Yeah. Oh. In this moment. And of course, that brings a number of others to mind, but you know, like Martin Luther King Jr. And, and those who put themselves out there in every conceivable way, put themselves on the line peacefully to try to affect change, to try to reach minds and hearts, but through strength, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. And, and I don't know how we carry that forward at this time, which feels so heightened. And of course, in the 60s, it was too. I think what I'm feeling here is just a loss of words and a loss of, of direction. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because so many of us, um, my being part of that us, have been asleep at the wheel in terms of taking for granted how things worked. And I, you know, I, I think it's worth acknowledging on my part that I am part of that, that dominant class for which and for whom the privilege exists, the power structure has existed in favor of. It's something that I am part of the group that has inherited it. Mm -hmm. And not everyone does the tremendous work, the difficult emotional and psychological and time-consuming lifelong work of looking into ourselves, finding that empathy, 
understanding the possibilities that, you know, I was raised to believe that the systems function properly, <laughs> that police officers are good people, trust them, go to them for help. You need help. Something's happening on your street, call them. And I think for an awful lot of people who are raised that way, like me, in that sort of safe environment where that was true enough, I think that those people that we struggle, if empathy is not our practice and compassion, I think that we struggle then to understand that that's not everyone's experience. Yeah. Adam, you, you hit on something so profound. You said if empathy and compassion are not our practice, and I think that you know, for whomever is listening to this podcast, particularly those who are part of the dominant culture, this isn't a, a, uh, my statement that I'm getting ready to make is not one um, for adopting per se a religious practice as much as a spiritual practice. Empathy and compassion have to be part of your mindfulness routine or practice. Anti-racism work is a spiritual practice because we have to move beyond the human ego and fear, anger, previous experience. And as you said, you know, the police from your purview do serve and protect. And if you do have a problem, they will help, they will, they will help you, they will aid you. And as we've witnessed, that is not the case for other members of the society, particularly black and brown people in this country. So with that, for many of us, our compass, we don't know where to go. But what I would su suggest, lovingly suggest, is going within, going to something bigger and greater than, than ourselves, because the tools, um, we're not conditioned. We're not conditioned to necessarily look head on at empathy and compassion as something. I mean, it's starting to be a movement, at least here where I'm from in my state, uh, state benchmarks for social emotional development and learning. They're starting there, you know, there's, there are benchmarks now, but they're still not given the same credence that, uh, mathematics and some of the other core uh, subject content areas are. So we have to look again within within ourselves and within each other to have courageous conversations with ourselves and have courageous conversations with others. And I don't mean the diatrust that exists on social media where, you know, people taking screenshots of what someone said and <laughs> posting it on their wall and you know this is what I said this is what they said and they don't get it they don't understand that's that's not what I'm saying I'm saying if people are willing to you know jump in it on a call and it's been interesting I've been having calls with, with perfect strangers at a like <laughs> really just people I don't know um to find that space of middle 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 ground and not so much compromising the integrity of what needs to happen. But where is the part that you are going to play? Where is the part that I, I'm going to play? And how do we start to chip away at the callousness? You know, how do we begin to chip away um, at, at has what been, really what's been laid for centuries. This thing is calcified. I mean, Adam, when we really look at the bigger perspective of, of where this behavior came from, we're going back to Ferdinand and Isabel of Spain. And most of us remember the Christopher Columbus song, Sail the Ocean Blue in 1492. Like, that is a long, right. right? That's a long time. And of course, we don't think about that history on a daily basis. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think the average person thinks about that. You know, wake up and think about Ooh, Ferdinand and Isabel are the culprits of a systemic <laughs> racism right. and, and colonialization. Right, right. <laughs> but when we look at what happened in, in Spain, it set the stage for what we're seeing today where you have Spaniards, Jews, Muslims, Black Muslims, Moors from 
Africa who are, you know, and I think even the, the Moorish Empire doesn't get the same um, acknowledgement the way when we think about world empires. It doesn't get acknowledged in the same way when we think about the Roman Empire and Greece and even the Ottoman Empire. We don't we don't contextualize it that that way. So I think that also too, then that also suggests what has what have been the contributions of Black people because for whatever reason the clock starts when it comes to Black history with the the transatlantic slave trade, and there was there were countless civilizations way way before Europe entered in into Africa. So I think when we think about humans and the value of life, we look at what one contributes. What are what are the contributions made? And that somehow legitimize that will legitimize um, a person's humanity. What are they contributing? What are they giving to society? Quite frankly, many of the modern technology, modern technology, the architecture and infrastructures that we see, yeah, Africans, Black people made those contributions. But that history, that that identity, that, that contribution is not spoken about. It's, it is, again, suppressed. So I'm envisioning, Adam, with this dialogue and a host of others, I think podcasts right now are a very powerful tool for having needed conversations but my 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 caveat my my pause is how do we turn these needed and thoughtful conversations to inspired and guided action out of what you just said so many things came to mind so many things resonated mm. and spiritual practice seems to be a thread for me in some of the thoughts, the ways that that resonated and the thoughts that came to my mind along the way in response to what you were saying. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to maybe the beginning, toward the beginning of, of what you were just saying about anti-racism, mm -hmm. that work being a spiritual practice, along with empathy being a spiritual practice, mm -hmm. I would have to acknowledge that for my wife, Becca and I, we both have spiritual practices mm -hmm. yet, and we both consider ourselves to be open, mm -hmm. learning, empathetic, compassionate. We try. And the word anti-racism seems like one of those things that has smacked us in the head in recent months, in particular since the things that have happened since George Floyd's death. It, it's, it's one of those, it, it should have been a no-brainer, it feels like. But to just say, well, racism's bad, for us to then take the next step, we've, we, this is something that I'd have to admit we learned, was this word anti-racism. Wait, it's not good enough to just say, oh, that's bad, and then not do anything. Mm -hmm. But to make it a practice, to make it active, and to actively then oppose what racism, systemic racism, and individual incidents of it, you might see on your, on the street or in the world. And so with that, I think that there's a, a struggle for so many people, this idea of these practices, mm -hmm. you said to go within. Mm -hmm. And I, I so agree with that. And I also am aware that I think that there's a lot of people who have no clue one, that that's a possibility or a right. thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then also how, how to even go there, how yeah. to do that. You yeah. know, someone who, is entrenched in just having the answers. Okay. If we go with another spiritual thing, I was just reading who knows for how many times in my life it's come back around to me, this, this Zen concept, mm. Zen Buddhist concept mm -hmm. that says you have to empty your mind yep. essentially to have space in order to then fill it back up with learning. That's right. And if you've decided that you already have all the answers that you already, you already know what life is. It's concrete. This is what it is. And I'm done with learning. If you think that your head is full of all those answers, then how do we then crack through to allow some of that out to then take in these other possibilities, the possibilities empathetically to consider someone else's truth? You know, what is your experience? What is, 
You know, th- this question comes to mind. And again, spiritual. This comes from a spiritual teacher of mine. Her name is Jessica Patterson, and she's a friend and a mentor. And one of the things that sticks with me for many things that she has taught me is when someone says something, you know, we have a tendency to either dismiss it or get with it mm-hmm. to immediately it's, oh, that's true for me or no way you're wrong, whatever. So her, her line that sticks with me is instead of asking whether it's true, ask, how is it true? Yeah. Find what is within that person's story. Maybe that's feedback about me, which of course might make me defensive or I can consider what they're saying. Take the parts that maybe I think are off more off the target and say, okay, I can dismiss that, but there's that nugget. I really need to do some work on myself with that. But I think then collectively we need to say that. Mm-hmm. If in the dominant culture here in this country, white folks who might be quick to dismiss this possibility that police are acting out of line, right? Because again, in the, in the town and neighborhoods and life where I've grown up largely, uh, my experience with police officers, at least is it doesn't, it's not necessarily always positive, but it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not a target. I'm not being abused in that way, but I need to be able to consider the possibility that maybe somebody else is. And I think for the dominant culture, for those who are resistant to this, they're resistant to the, how might it be true? They're not considering, uh, that other person's story. Correct. From an empathetic place. Mm -hmm. Instead, they say he must have done something wrong because police officers don't act bad. Right. And so there's a lot that we're talking about here that's just so intertwined. Mm-hmm. And it, you know what? It comes back to us having to look at ourselves. Yes. And if we're not willing to look at ourselves and look at what might not be right in our thinking, what not, might not be right about how we are viewing or listening to things, if we're not willing to do that, it's pretty tough to make that connection that advances us collectively, mm-hmm. I think. But that's the entry point, Adam. You just hit the nail on the head for someone who may be struggling with the lofty concept of going within. Like, that's so esoteric. Like, what do you mean go within? Taking a pause. And it's a critical step in uh, recovery for NA or AA. The fourth step, which is one must do a critical moral inventory of oneself that's the portal of what i'm talking about of going within get curious instead of judgmental get curious if you are feeling some internal resistance what do you mean police officer bad well what did he this is one of my favorite what did he why did he resist the officer get curious why would you say something like that and especially when we're seeing now, some, I mean, it, it's always been, but now we have very visceral mounting evidence, physical evidence. I remember when Philando Castillo was murdered in front of his, um, in front of his children. And I think I sobbed for weeks behind that. And then like the letters, because I believe he, he worked at a school and he had such a beautiful relationship with, with, the, with the children there. And they you know, I miss you. And, you know, why did you have to leave? And it was just all of this really just gut wrenching, just, you know, listening and watching the innocence of, of children that can't really understand uh, what's happening in the world around them. How is this person that is so beloved by his community a symbol of fear in another? We have to get curious. That's the portal inward. Yeah. Curiosity is, is huge for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, I'm, I, I've always or long been curious about the lack of curiosity for some. I, I, I'm, I don't understand how some people's brains work. Of course, I only know what it's like to live in my body and <laughs> right. in my brain and in my heart. Right. But curiosity, it's just so important. And, and you mentioned Flando Castile being killed in front of, uh, in front of his family, we, we we've seen, like with Jacob Blake, young kids, his young kids were present for this trauma. So, in recent months, you know, I I have two sons, mm-hmm. they're eight and almost ten, and my wife and I have had a lot of conversations, especially in the last few months around all of these things, 
And we don't, we never have talked to them like little kids. We honor them as full humans Mm -hmm. who are young and at a certain perhaps level of learning and understanding of the world so far. But I see it as, as critical to my role in their lives to be a teacher or to be a conduit to learning. And so they are very aware of Black Lives Matter, of George Floyd, of all these things going on, protests, these things. We've been talking about all of it. And I have, you know, a couple of, of moments with them have stuck in my mind because I think of the, the children that are there for these traumatic events and how horrible that's got to be for them. And then I think of my young sons. And so I made a connection for them and understanding the difference in this power structure. Yeah. And I maybe made a mistake in, in asking them to try to imagine, can you, if, because they've been with me a handful of times when I've been pulled mm-hmm. over by police and they get a kick out of it. And that's also because it's not a threat to my well-being, to my life. And I've asked them in that moment, that particular conversation, for them to to be able to understand what is happening to some people out there, black people, people of color as well. Can you imagine if one of those times when I was pulled over and you were with me, if the police officers came up and they immediately started to be mean to me, Mm -hmm. to yell at me, to maybe um, start grabbing at me, to get me out of the car, to beat me up and possibly to shoot me. And my oldest son, the one who's about 10, he's very sensitive and feeling kid. Mm -hmm. And he started crying and practically pleading with me to stop that story, that idea. And he wanted to stop the conversation. Well, that led us to having to highlight that's the very essence of our privilege. Mm -hmm. If we can stop this conversation and act like these things don't happen, you know, yes, I want to be sensitive to the fact that he's a young kid, but it also is another teaching moment that people who live this, they, they're living with this fear, if not the actuality on an ongoing daily basis. And they don't get to turn away from it and say, stop the conversation. That's right. Adam, that is so spot on with age appropriate conversation around privilege. Because that's the epitome of privilege. And, and I really want us to evolve past privilege being this dirty word. We, yeah. we, we've got to stop with, well, I grew up poor or I grew up this way. But privilege, the, the actual definition of it is what your son experienced. You can stop and walk away from this anytime you get ready. You're not impacted directly by this. Um, you, you don't, good friend and colleague of mine had a similar conversation with, you know, her children in that she said, Rohinda, I don't have to worry about my son coming home from school or from wherever he's going. I don't have to live with getting a phone call in the middle of the night. Leon Ford's mom, this is the, the gentleman who was shot in Philadelphia and paralyzed. They had to get a lawyer, an attorney, to file um, an injunction or, or file so that they would know what hospital he was in. And his mother attempts to uh, kiss him, as any mother would. And she's yelled at, don't touch him. I cannot imagine what that did to her womb. Hearing someone tell you that you cannot touch your own child. Not only not touch your child, but your child has been maimed and you're instructed. Again, humanity. How do you tell a mother to not touch the life that she carried in her body and is now watching that life hang in the balance? I don't get that. Help me understand that. (laughs) I I don't get it. I don't either. Um... I just don't either. I, I, I have not figured out answers to any of well, so many of the things that I'm watching right now mm-hmm. in the politics, in our the cultural divisions and the systemic racism things. And it, we have we have multiple crises weighing down on everyone in this country. 
I'll venture to say disproportionately, but the weight is there across the board, Mm -hmm. economically, in health, in the legal system, Mm -hmm. uh, everything. And having acknowledged my, my space, um, of privilege within our society. Yeah. I, I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't even begin to guess how many times, you know, my wife and I, it's, it's almost like we can't have a conversation on any given day without having a disclaimer to each other, which we already know the disclaimer full well, but we can't, we can't get the words out without saying, look, I understand that we are fortunate mm-hmm. in our lives. Mm-hmm. And it's our sort of way when we're talking about the weight of these things, we feel this. I, you know, I, I am struggling with things like anxiety and depression and those things. And then it gets acknowledged again. This is in private conversation with just me and my wife. There's mm-hmm. nobody here to judge me. She knows where I'm coming from. Yet for the hundredth time, I'll say, I know how privileged I am. I know I have nothing to complain about. And yet I'm emotionally connected to all this and to the weight of what's happening. And I'm struggling myself. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine how those who are suffering with the illness of COVID-19 in their house or with the brutality that's happening in the world. And it's, so I don't have an answer to how in the world you would handcuff Jacob Blake when you've paralyzed him. He's lucky to be alive. I mean, you know, and this other situation where the mother is not allowed to, to care for, um, utter lack of humanity. And I don't, it's part of the system, mm-hmm. right? People are, are feeling, I think, validated in their fears and their worst desires. I'm thinking here of the bad actors, whether police officers or not, how they feel empowered to act out in this way, which is coming from their place of pain and fear. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw, I don't know if you're a sports fan. I saw the coach and former NBA player, Doc Rivers, Make such an emotional Ooh. comment the other day. I, I love Doc, and and part of it is for his his mind, for what he communicates, and his being tapped into this humanity. Yeah. And he res- in response with media, in response to the Jacob Blake events, you know, just commented on we're the ones who are being hung historically. We're the ones who are being killed. Mm-hmm. But all you talk about, and he, he cited specifically the Republican National Convention, Definitely. you're talking about fear, fear, fear. Yeah. And I'll add hate. Yeah. But we're the ones who are being killed. We're the ones who are being shot. We love this country, but we're not getting love back. Yes. How can this be? Yes. And that sentiment, you know, we can reach back to, you know, my parents' generation with the Vietnam War. Um, you know, many of my parents' friends, you know, returned home and they, they weren't the same mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Um, we have a good family friend now who, as a result of Agent Orange, um, has lost his sight completely. And that traces back to Vietnam. Others have expressed, um, horrible nightmares where their partners would fear for their lives in the middle of the night, uh, because of night terrors. And such, and so to, you know, um, the 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 dismay and 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 anger, public anger that you know people hur- hurled at uh, Muhammad Ali because he was vehemently opposed to um, the Vietnam War for the same reasons that Doc, um, I cried watching it, <laughs> and I'm sure many people did. I was very emotional watching it. How much more can we give to a country to prove our humanity? How much more do we have to give and demonstrate? And, you know, hearing some of the ugly sentiments that are being said, you know, this is a disruption because they they have decided to uh, not play. I saw that the baseball league has followed suit. Uh, I don't know when they're going to go back and play, but, or the, uh, well, their their salaries are such that, you know, them not playing uh, really doesn't impact them. And I would venture to say that that was a really snide remark to make. And to, you know, Doc's point, I can't imagine being a coach and being in a, lo- in a locker room with players who 
this is their story. You know, being that close to my, I have a niece, I have an uncle, I have a father, I have a such and such in my family. This is, this is something that I deal on your way to suit up. This could be your reality. They're not necessarily checking to see that you're an NBA player, you know, where you don't have your jersey on, you know, you're still a black man in America or, or a black woman in America for the WNBA or a woman of color in America. So the, 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 the fate <laughs> that has been met, that could be yours. So, yeah, we do need these larger signs of solidarity. That was a mobilization. Um, I don't know if you saw this, Adam, but I was watching. They had a, a shot from behind the players, and some of them had red stains at the on the back of their shirts, around their spine, the lower part of their spine. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Representing mm-hmm. representing blood from having been shot in the back. That's right. Yeah. Seven of them. Seven seven bullet wounds. You know there is a history of professional athletes like Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. Kareem Abdul Jabbar, mm-hmm. who oh, played yeah. basketball, mm-hmm. Jim Brown, the football mm-hmm. player, mm-hmm. back in the '60s, having been voices. Mm-hmm. The Olympics uh, in Mexico. Right, Mexico. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking. You got what Tommy Smith and John Carlos mm-hmm. raising their fists, and then being after they took the podium then being stripped of their medals and sent home the next day in punishment. You know, Jesse Owens running back in the 30s in Germany, in Berlin, in front of Hitler. Mm. And he spoke through his actions of just being the best guy on the track that day and winning and daring, having the audacity to be a black man who did it in front of the Mm -hmm. eyes of Adolf Hitler and his just ultimate racist supremacist beliefs, right? There's a long history of athletes having platforms to speak out. And those who don't want to hear it, I'm sure you're familiar with what they do. Just stick to dribbling the ball. Yep. Stick to playing your game. As if these people are not full human beings living in this experience. And like you said, many of them, They come from personal experiences. Maybe it's people in their family and it's often themselves where they have been harassed, if not by the structure itself, just walking through daily life. That's right. I love hearing these athletes speak out and take a stand and use that platform because, you know, LeBron James is recognizable, but what if he wasn't? He's no different than any other man who is being attacked violently or verbally in whatever way you shouldn't have to be famous globally famous that's right and uber wealthy to get a pass on being quote inferior because the person standing across from you with hate in their eyes sees it that way right absolutely what do we do what do we do Brenda to love each other we're having this conversation yeah And I know we both want this to have some sort of positive ripple effect and resonance for anyone who might listen to it. It's really an open-ended question. I don't know the answer to it myself at this moment, but how do we just, between the two of us, we are strangers. We've never met in person. We never met before coming together for this podcast conversation and... Mm -hmm what do we do? You know, how do we take a breath and ripple positive into the world that makes an impact? I think that we become curious. I just want to go back to that piece. So I don't know what sectors of society your listeners are going to to come from, but I would say for someone to listen to a podcast entitled The Manitou, you are deeply concerned with humanity. I know we get trolls, so you know, maybe not, but (laughs) but for the most part, I would like to think that if you're 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 tuning into such a podcast, you are you are on the path of searching for connection and belongingness and understanding of the craziness of the world that is around you. So you're tuning in for hope. You're tuning in for inspiration. You're tuning in for guidance. So then I would say, ah. Share this episode with someone else. Create a listening party. I mean, you have had so many wonderful guests on on this show. And before I even entered into it, you know, I, I listened to your podcast and I was like, I really like this. Um, 
Thank you. Yeah. And, and I, and I say that, um, you know, not to say like, you know, Adam, here's a cookie for, you know, let's talk, you know, talking about race, but I'm saying like, honestly, create listening parties for podcasts like this. I mean, and we're socially distancing. So, you know, take the time out for maybe someone you haven't reached out to in a while and say, you know, let's listen to, uh, you know, I heard this episode. I want to listen to it with you. My sister and I do things like we pass each other, um, like YouTube videos that, 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 that'll strike like an emotional cord or a spiritual cord. And then we discuss it. We have a conversation about it and we look at how we can then take the nuggets away and then put it into practice. And I think that one of the things that has happened here that I hope that can be carried forward, Adam, you're, you're a great listener. Um, we've done a dance here of listening to each other. And that's not to say that um, resistance doesn't often come up or disagreement, but it's, it's being present in a conversation, not waiting to talk, but being present in a conversation. Right. You know, and then wherever it is that you, you are in society playing your position in education or, you know, in the civic parts of our, our society or whatever, or even entrepreneurship, I would say you even have a bigger platform when you're an entrepreneur to invite in curiosity and having courageous conversations with colleagues that, you know, maybe participating or not participating. But I think it's really um, important to lean into the empathy of understanding a person's circumstances, showing respect to personality, and let's explore behavior because we behave in, in whatever way that we behave predicated on our, what we perceive to be our choices. I think those are wonderful ideas. And, you know, what came to mind was by starting with ourselves, by going in, we're by looking at our own stories, our own questions, coming up with questions. We're back to the curiosity, but we can't love others until we love ourselves. And if we can't, mm. if we can't start with ourselves, then maybe we just can't start. Like we, we just have to be willing to look at ourselves and be w- willing to look and dig into whatever we might find there, the shame, the pain that we're afraid we'll find and to gently, kindly with ourselves be curious about what all that means, what's there and how we might move forward. Mm-hmm. So this conversation, we're, we're going to wind down here, <laughs> but this whole conversation was completely different than what either of us had expected because events unfolded between, you know, the, the few days separation between when you and I had an initial call to line up this call, this conversation to record. And I love the conversation that we've had. I think it's meaningful. It's powerful. It's important. And here's what I'm, what I'm wondering. And I want to propose to you, you don't have to answer now, but if you would like to come back and we have something that might be like the other conversation Mm -hmm. that I thought we might have. And here's the reason is I see this conversation with you and for those listening as such a representation of your light in the world and how you are positively shining and impacting and empowering. We didn't even get a chance yet to tell people <laughs> that what anything of what you do, how you're a mentor and a coach in the world, and how you have an organization that supports and empowers girls, and just how you're engaged in such positive and meaningful ways that you use the word femolutionary to describe your. I mean, there's a lot here to talk about. You're a poet. You're a speaker. (laughs) Okay. So to me, if you are up for it again, you don't have to answer now, but I would love for us to have another conversation another day when it feels more appropriate to talk about those, those pieces. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to come to the last question then for today. As I explain pretty much in every episode, it's based on what I say humanity is about, and that is humanness and creativity. What I ask listeners, each listener in each episode, I say, how do you live humanness and creativity in your life? It's a prompt. You and I have engaged in an hour here Mm -hmm. of incredible humanity with each other. 
So I'm going to ask the question this way. What is most meaningful to you about you and about how you view the world and engage with it? I believe the most meaningful thing about me to me is my dedication to the to scholarship of being human. I decided that I would treat my incarnation here as school. I'm learning and I will internal however long I have here, but I do feel like eternal. I'll be the eternal student and I will learn. I will grow. I will get pushed. I will get called into (laughs) or called out for, (laughs) you know, what I say, what I don't say and be okay with that and being gentle with myself. And I, I express as you um, mentioned, and yes, perhaps in another time we'll we'll get into that. Poetry is how I keep my sanity, Adam. <laughs> I don't know what I would do without it. And in the the act of writing it, but also reading it, because whenever I feel a sense of of despair or being lost, I have um, always near me uh, a book of poetry. And in particular, Rumi poetry. Mm. And I even have an anthology next to me of African-American literature. So there, there's just kind of certain things that just kind of keep, keep around me, keep on my person. And, and, and that's how, um, you know, I, I express is through the lens of, of poetry. And to be quite honest with you, one of the biggest things that helps me the anchor to my humanity is inside my coaching container. You know, clients will reach out to me for coaching, you know, to help them hone their empathic gifts and and how to use it in their in their business. And I would even say their missions because it's deeper than business. But I guarantee you that every time I'm in the container, it's symbiotic. I learn something. I become more aware. I believe that they make me a better person. You know, that's a wonderful way to wrap this because I feel that way about these conversations. Mm -hmm. I look at humanity and these conversations that we have as empowering connection of humanness and creativity. So I learn from you. I, I go into a more meaningful place of awareness and I can walk away from this with even more to consider. Mm-hmm. about myself, about the world and how we move forward. So Berhenda, thank you so much for your time, for your insights and for your willingness to have this conversation and at this time. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. This this, this means a lot. And uh, I, I hope that uh, whoever's listening, you know, I'm open to can reach out to me. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, <laughs> Brenda, you can Google me. I'm the only one in the world. Um, and, and yeah, and, and let's, you know, continue conversation, but mobilization. What are our, our steps for our individual walk, but also the collective? I'll include links for you in the show notes on, on my site. So awesome. that's another way that people can find it. Again, thank you, Brenda. Thank you, Adam. Okay, that was my conversation with Brenda Williams. The conversation that we needed to have and one that we hope sparks some possibilities and connections for you and those around you as well. You can learn more about Brenda Williams in the show notes published on our website at humanitude.com. Now I'm going to gently but directly ask that you share this episode with someone today, somehow, by word of mouth, text, email, social media, and the greater purpose in rating and reviewing it on podcast players like Apple or iTunes is that it can help to give it more light in the algorithms of our digital lives. Leaving a comment on the post at Humanity on Instagram can do the same, helping to move the levers of good for more people to learn and grow from what's shared here. I value all the conversations shared here at Humanity a lot. 
Yet, like I said at the beginning of this episode, I think that this conversation is an especially special one that carries a certain immediacy of need for many people to hear what Brahenda shares in it. As always, to keep the good going, I invite you to follow Humanity on your podcast player or subscribe to the Humanity newsletter via the website. We're regularly adding conversations like this one, full of courage, meaning, and spirit. Together, we can cultivate a more empathetic, compassionate, and creative world. I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of this Humanitude podcast. Thanks for being here.